You can open up your copies of the Word of God again. But tonight, let's turn to Luke's Gospel, chapter 23. And as you're turning there, I'm going to pray to our our Lord to help us in this time. Thank you, Lord, for another moment to serve you and to worship you and to praise you and to make your name great. I pray that as we open up your word this evening, its truths would pierce our hearts and our minds, and we would not be quick. We would not be quick to let these things slip away. But that we would think about these things and earnestly seek you to change us through the truth of your word. May we not be those who taste, who taste, but never take in. Take your word and plant it deep within us. For your glory and your praise. Amen. doesn't matter what season it is. There are some songs I feel like I can sing anytime. One of my favorite songs... And I think it's a song for all seasons, really. Is how sweet and awful is the place. Admittedly, as a child, I didn't understand the title of this song. How sweet and awful? Of course, there it's a picture of the the throng of the saved being gathered together in a banquet scene. And rejoicing in the grace and the wonder and the glory of their salvation before their God. And it's a, it's a sweet, a sweetness to the redeemed to be there. It is a, an experience that is full of awe. There's this question that floods the hearts and the minds of all of the redeemed, the the church saved by God in this picturesque banquet scene. And that is this, why was I chosen to be a guest here? Why was I made, the Watts hymn goes, why was I made to hear your voice and enter while there's room? When when thousand make a wretched choice and rather starve than come, why was I chosen to come here and to taste such a sweet and delicious banquet? You see, my friends, this evening, uh, faith and belief is not the natural choice. That's what we'll see again and again. And we'll see this in our passage tonight. Well, thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve that come, only a few come. Why was I chosen to come? Why were you chosen to come? The cross presses men and women to a choice. Tonight, continuing in our series on Outrageous Grace, we will look at these choices. We'll see, we'll see four wretched and starving sinners at the cross. And we'll see who makes what choice. But first, we need to catch up with Jesus on his, on his earthly journey in the Gospel of Luke. 
I love thinking about big picture overviews of books. Some of you don't know, but one of my mentors in seminary, Dr. Keith Essex, was here this morning. A very intimidating experience, if I'm to be completely honest. He comes up to me afterwards and he says three things. Number one, good job preaching from the Old Testament. Number two, I can tell you're a youth pastor. And number three, good job, you got the point of First Kings. Now that was just music to my soul. There is someone, he has shaped me in loving to see the big picture. And so let me just move here to, to just kind of emphasize the big picture of the Gospel of Luke. See the big picture, and then you can look at the, whole, the little pieces. But uh, the big picture of Luke is simply to show us God's man for God's plan to save sinners. That's who Jesus is. He's God's man for God's plan to save sinners sinners. You see that theme all throughout the Gospel of Luke. And I especially love the Gospel of Luke because Luke loves to show the glory of Christ, his excellence, his perfection, his wonder, his mercy, his grace through uh, Jesus's encounters with various sinners. Go through the Gospel of Luke and you'll, you'll see Christ's glory on display as he encounters individuals. Let's turn to Luke 23. Luke 23, 32. And we're right in the middle of the crucifixion about to occur. Simon is about to carry the cross. Jesus has been God's man, seeking God's plan to save sinners, and that plan has brought him to this cross. And verse 32 says, Now two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And here we are in the Gospel of Luke, almost right up to the steps of Golgotha. Of course, Luke here calls it the skull. And at this point in Jesus' experience, Jesus has been beaten and whipped near an inch of his life. Flogging was no joke, as you probably know. Flogging or whipping was, was meant to almost weaken the criminal to such a point that they would die quicker on the cross. You'd say it's kind of merciful, but at the same time it's sadistic because by weakening the criminal, they're inhibiting their ability to pull themselves up on the cross and continue. And so the person on the cross is killed by pitting their bodily exhaustion against their desperate desire to breathe. And that is how someone dies on a cross. And Jesus has been beaten and abused within an inch of his life before he even arrives at the cross. And the cross, crucifixion, that practice in the Roman world had a very important purpose to it. It was meant to be a spectacle of misery. It was meant to cause a repulsive and, and, and horrifying response. It was meant to cause everyone that could see it to say in themselves, I'm glad I'm not him. I don't ever want to be in a place where I am in that position. Because you see, it was a public deterrent for rebellion. It was Rome saying to anyone, if you try to rebel against us, this is what is going to happen to you. Matter of fact, if you, if you read 
If you read historians from that period, crosses were often placed on public roads leading into the most important cities because they had this point. The more rebellious a nation was, the more crosses appeared. For example, I read somewhere that during the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, the Roman soldiers actually ran out of wood from all of the crosses that they were constructing. And once again, the message of the cross was clear. Look at the horror rebellion will bring you. Don't even try it. We are stronger than you, and we will crush you. Now Luke 23, 32 shows us a little background to the cross scene. Jesus, we are told, is placed between two other criminals. Now it's important to note that in Rome's mind, Jesus wasn't anybody important. He was just another criminal. Matthew and Mark call these two men bandits or robbers. Luke chooses a more common title of criminal, likely because he wants to show that Jesus is numbered with the transgressors, with the criminals. Notice verse 33, uh, they crucified him there. All four Gospels actually make a point, and a very simple point, that Jesus was crucified. But notice, they never really describe the prolonged agony at all. Movies take up this, but the Gospels are never really intent on talking about the agony. They're more interested in talking about the public reviling that comes to Jesus. And this is where we meet God's man for God's plan to save sinners, being reviled and derided on the cross. And Jesus' first words to us on the cross are shocking and unusual surprising, and they're revealing. They show us who this man is. Verse 34, But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. And you see that they are casting lots, dividing up his garments among themselves, which is an Old Testament prediction fulfillment. But, but notice what Jesus is saying. He is asking for the forgiveness of the men who are doing this to him. Now, a really important background note to also understand, normally a crucified criminal would use whatever oxygen and air he had left to viciously accuse and resist the people who are trying to kill him. You don't have any room in your heart for love and kindness. You are using every conceivable term you can think of to shout down curses on the ones that are trying to do this. And out of your heart, your mouth will speak and your heart will reveal bitterness and rage and anger because this is torture. But here, here, Jesus is seen, notice this, as a very different person on the inside of him. Where every other individual would scream and holler curses and blasphemies, Jesus is different. 
He is praying forgiveness for the ones who are hurting him. Now, who could he be praying for? This could be any of the people standing around the cross, but the closest and the best explanation is the most shocking one. He is praying for Roman soldiers who have just done this to him with their cruel and filthy hands. As the song goes, we see him there upon the hill, Hear the scorn and laughter. Silent as a lamb, he waits, waiting to the Father. See the King who made the sun and the moon and shining stars. Let the soldiers hold and nail him down so that he could save them. Who is he praying for? He is praying for some of these soldiers even as they are killing him mercilessly, carelessly, indifferently, he is praying for them. This scene is filled, in other words, with outrageous grace. How could you do this, Jesus, to these individuals who have done these things to you? How could you display any grace to them? And to appreciate that, I want to present to you this contrast of these responses. So once again, four wretched, starving sinners at the cross. Four four choices for us this evening. Our first choice, we see the religious at the cross. The religious at the cross. He is scorned, we see, by the religious ones. The good ones. The moral ones. The ones that everyone looked up to with ooh and ah. Remember, Jesus actually came, he would say, to seek and save the lost. As a matter of fact, in Luke's Gospel, it's an emphasis. Luke 5.31, it is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And then Luke 19.10, for the Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. So the religious response to Jesus of scorning him and scoffing at him is not really all that surprising if you think about it. Religious people find Jesus' whole life, and particularly his death, supremely offensive. This isn't the kind of Savior they need. They're saying to themselves, we are looking for a Savior. We're looking for a Jewish Savior who will bring in the kingdom And, you know, bringing the kingdom for those of us who deserve it, who have worked for it. This isn't the kind of Savior we want. And look at their scorn of him as he hangs on the cross in verse 35. And the people stood by looking on, and even the rulers were, notice, scoffing at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. Notice they're scoffing. This is a word that could refer to turning up the noses at someone. It means to use your nose in a ridicule fashion. Maybe, as one translation puts it, it means to make faces at someone in a mocking sense. And to, to them, the cross here, notice that it demonstrates that Jesus is certainly not God's man for God's plan, right? He is certainly not God's chosen one. All of his words, all of his warnings, 
all of his woes that have been directed towards them are hereby undone by this cross. This was certainly not how God would allow his chosen one to be treated. Therefore, they would say to themselves, look at this man on this cross, this worthless self-savior. He is nothing. We do not have to listen to any of his words concerning us. Matter of fact, their argument is an assumption of truth to, it seems, comfort themselves. They're using an if statement, if then statement. They're saying, if he is the Christ, and let's just say hypothetically that we are wrong, let him come down now from the cross. If we're wrong, come down. Oh, you're not coming down. You're wrong. We're right. We have nothing to fear from you. Your words are empty. We were right all along. It's kind of amazing, though. It's an amazing irony. Notice what they have to admit. They have to admit something. They have seen something. They have heard reports of something. They admit, in verse 35, that he saved others. They apparently saw or heard of many miracles, and they even admit this, but this is not good enough for them. No, it all is meaningless because of this cross. Notice this. Notice this important lesson. You, you can see and you can even receive a lot of evidence about who Jesus is and still reject him as God's man with God, on God's plan to save sinners. In the end, their response is not surprising. In reality, this is the same heart they held towards Jesus for Jesus' entire earthly ministry. This is how they had treated him from the beginning. The cross just solidified or cemented their hearts toward Jesus all the deeper. He is a loser, and we do not need to listen to him. He is not the kind of Savior we want. What kind of Savior were they looking for? They were looking for simply a Savior that validated their own righteousness. That said, you guys are so good. Will you please come into my kingdom? They, were, they had this mindset all throughout their life. Man, God must sure be happy to have me on my team. God sure deserves me. Or in other words, because I know you're all L.A. Lakers fans here, this is, their heart is like LeBron James saying, I'm taking my talents to South Beach. Right? God must really need me on his team and all my talents. I'm looking for a savior who appreciates my talents. That's the righteous. And they scorn Jesus on the cross. Let's look at the second choice. And this is a choice of the mighty. He is, we see, mocked by the mighty in verse 36. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine. Now, soldiers here probably are not referring to natural Roman citizens or soldiers from Italy, but they are probably local recruits. They're hired guns for Rome, and they probably came from invaded lands. These are probably Syrian, Sumerian, maybe even Judean soldiers. 
And now, what is their motivation? What, why are they, why did they become Roman soldiers? They became Roman soldiers because they had an obsession with power, with might, right? They, perhaps in some situations, chose enmity with their nation, their native nation, in order to feel the control and comfort from being on the strong man's team. It was a volatile world, and this was a way they could feel in control, by being on Rome's team. It, it was, Rome, the only power worth knowing. It was the only strength on earth. All other gods, all other nations in their mind were nothing. They were peewee leagues compared to Rome. And they wanted to be on the winning side. They were tired of being on the losing team. And notice they're offering him sour wine, these mighty soldiers, and this is probably mocking too. This is the cheap stuff. This is the only stuff that they were probably allowed to use. This would also be the the cheap wine used for hard laborers to quench thirst after hard work. And this, of course, reminds us again that crucifixion was hard and difficult, even for the Roman soldiers that were putting it into practice they probably weren't actually intending to offer him a drink this was more of a cruel mockery of him it's almost as if they were pretending to be his you know you know royal court and they were saying here king will you drink with us but once again this is their response they think they are on the winning side and they see christ on the cross and they mock him. Once again, this response is not surprising at all. Those who pursue strength, power, control in the world have no need of a dying Savior. They only respect power. The cross only confirms that you don't need to fear that guy. But this brings us to our next choice. Our next wretched choice, you could say. But this category of choices is a bit surprising because you'd think this next group of people would run to Jesus. The next choice is the choice of the embittered. He is hated and rejected by the embittered. To be embittered is to be angry, to be resentful. Resentful of perceived or real injustices that have been inflicted on you. This is what it means to be embittered. You have had a difficult life and you are angry. Who is the embittered at this scene? We see the embittered response from both of the criminals on the cross against Jesus. And why are they embittered at Jesus? Jesus is one of them, He's on the cross. They are embittered against Jesus because he is not rescuing them from their current situation. Jesus is a useless Savior to their suffering. Who needs him? Notice verse 39. And one of the criminals hanging there was blaspheming him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Jesus, we've heard these things you've done. This is nothing. Save yourself from this and us. 
It's not at all surprising, though, the way these men die. This embittered criminal. Because listen to this. People tend to die the way they live. People tend to die the way they live. When you live your whole life blaspheming and blaming God, you probably will die blaspheming and blaming God. When you live your whole life disregarding your eternal destination, you will probably die without a mind or a heart change. That's a hard truth for us to embrace, believe. But we see it. Reading J.C. Ryle's Thoughts for Young Men, he quotes a Bishop Lightfoot who says, the life of sin is like running downhill. The further you go, the faster you go, and the harder it is to stop. We want to think that there, there is a great opportunity on the deathbed, but the nature of sin hardens the sinner against God. And this is surprising here, but because if you look at your cross-references in Matthew and Mark, we see both of them state that both criminals were actually doing this. Both criminals were actually the embittered. Both criminals were hurling bitter insults and accusations at Jesus. Both had lived full lives and now were living in embittered and against Jesus. Now on the cross, both were hurling insults at him because, once again, he wasn't the Savior that they needed in the moment. For example, Matthew 27, 44 says, And the robbers who had been crucified with him were also insulting him. Uh, Mark 15, 32 says, Those who were crucified with him were also insulting him. And now let this be a warning to us. A clear warning to us. Trials, troubles, deathbeds don't make you any more automatically ready to change in your attitude towards Jesus. Suffering and difficulty in this life don't actually make you automatically more receptive to Jesus. In likelihood, you will die with Jesus as you lived with Jesus. You can be embittered and hate Jesus because he's not solving your immediate need. You can experience the same circumstances that cause other people to turn to Jesus. Turn to Jesus in humbleness and faith and delight and joy. You can experience those same circumstances that other people can experience and only respond in deeper and deeper anger towards Jesus. Difficult circumstances won't solve your problems. They'll just solidify and cement who you are the truth is the cross of jesus ultimately just reveals who you are it just reveals your heart 
The cross of Jesus will be insulting and foolish to those who have lived pretty good lives in their own mind. The cross of Jesus will be weak and impotent to those who seek worldly power and wisdom. The cross of Jesus will be empty and useless to those who are so embittered and inward focused on their pain that they can't see anything outside themselves. They will only say, this cross is meaningless to me and to my pain. In other words, every heart, every heart will find reason to reject the cross of Jesus. We see it here at the very cross of Jesus itself. And we see it in our lives and in our world again and again and again. That is, except for one heart. One heart responds differently to Jesus. And this leads us to our our final person, our final wretched and starving sinner at the cross. This person, like so many others in Luke's Gospel, is included now to show us the glory of Jesus. Are you ready to see some Jesus glory? So we've we've seen the, the righteous who scorned He doesn't deserve me. We see the mighty who have mocked Jesus. He can't give me real power or control. We see the embittered who hate and reject Jesus because his cross is meaningless to their pain. But now that takes us to the humbled. The humbled. The humbled look to Jesus. The humble look to Jesus. Here's a surprising character in our account. Look at verse 40, the first the first few words of verse 40. But the other, that, the, that is the other criminal, answered. The other criminal hanging on the cross. Once again, remember, he is speaking here to, to be on a cross was not easy. It was difficult. It was taxing. Criminals, once again, on a cross were not known for their sweetness of spirit. They were not calm and sober about their condition. No, they're more like injured dogs. Have you ever tried to pet an injured dog? You'll lose a hand. But notice, what does he do? He, he answers and he rebukes. He rebukes the criminal who was blaspheming Jesus. This is, rebukes is a, uh, a word of strong disapproval, and it even has this sense of strong warning. Don't do that. He's earnestly seeking to bring such behavior to an end. Verse, verse 40, uh, the, the other answered and rebuking him said, Do you not even fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? We, indeed, are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for what we have done. But this man has done nothing. That is a long thing to say when you are gasping for breath. That takes energy. That is difficult. But notice the surprising thing here is the very content of his words. MacArthur 
I love how he says it in his commentary. His sudden outburst must have startled and surprised the other criminal. But what the two of them had been saying about Jesus, he now found repulsive and frightening. He confronted the tragic condition of uh, that only moments before had been his own. In a moment, he went from being part of it to being unable to comprehend it. Close quote. And once again, this man did not appear to come to the cross with a softness of heart. He didn't come to the cross hoping in a Savior. He didn't come to the cross with humility. He came probably just as hard and as blasphemous as the other. He came, in other words, embittered. Remember, he was one of the criminals spewing blasphemies at Jesus a moment earlier. J.C. Ryle writes this of this man. He was a wicked man, a malefactor, a thief, if not a murderer. We know this, for such only were crucified. He was suffering a just punishment for breaking the laws. And as he had lived wicked, so he seemed determined to die wicked. But then something happened. Something changed. But don't take my word for it. Listen to the man himself. Listen to him. He is rebuking. Suddenly he's trying to stop his comrade across from him, from continuing on. Suddenly, in all the pain and embitterment, his heart is convicted and grieved by his sin against God. And notice verse 41, he makes a confession of his own guilt. And notice the forcefulness of his words. He says, we indeed are suffering justly. Justly refers to their suffering as right or fitting. In his mind, what was happening to him is right and fitting and just. He, in other words, sees himself as belonging on the cross. We're supposed to be here. Matter of fact, it's important. He was not, by his own admission, on the cross at all anymore for righteousness' sake. He belonged on the cross. He was there for unrighteousness. And matter of fact, he could say to himself, even if Rome is crucifying me unjustly, I can think of dozens of reasons in my mind and in my heart, even right now, for why I belong here. I am suffering justly. That is what happens. But let's keep going. We are receiving due reward, he says. We are getting what's right. We are getting the fair price. This is what we deserve. Now once again, just to go into it, my guess is both criminals were dangerous men, not just petty thieves. They were probably revolutionaries. They were probably murderers. They were likely cohorts with uh, Barabbas, who according to Luke twenty-three nineteen, was thrown into prison and onto this cross for insurrection and murder. And likely Barabbas was the man that would have been in the middle cross. I mean, that's fairly clear. And if this is the case, this man is a criminal and a hardened man. He is hardened indeed. And having a stab of conscience, 
It was probably an experience he hasn't had in a very, very long time. Perhaps his change of heart was surprising to him. But what had changed? Because clearly something had changed. And, and why did it change? Well, first off, clearly something had changed. Notice all the fruits his repentance and faith is producing. Some people like to point to the thief on the cross and say, look at that, no fruits required. You don't have to do anything. But notice, faith does show up in your works. You don't earn your salvation, but a changed life must result from faith. Notice, he has all of these fruits. He has a terror of God's judgment for his sin, right? This is a sign that you know God is at work in you, convicting you of your sin. You are filled with the severity of your crime against God. You know that you are a sinner against God. Even if, even if your parents or your co-workers are accusing you of something unjust, you can say, yes, but I know of many other things that I have done that are much worse. And I'm a sinner. He has a terror of God's judgment. He has a, a sense of guilt in his own crimes. And notice this, this is the tell. He has a love and concern for his fellow criminal on the cross. He is trying to stop him from continuing. This man has changed. But where did this change come from? Now let me make a big, long, fancy argument that maybe isn't that big, maybe isn't that long, and maybe isn't that fancy. But here we have, here we have the Spirit's work through the Son's Word according to the Father's will. Here we have the Spirit's work through the Son's words according to the Father's will. That's how salvation always happens. Notice, uh, let me argue my case. Only the Spirit, number one, only the Spirit changes the heart of men towards Christ. Only the Spirit does that. Scripture is... is full of examples and theology. For example, there's this picture of Lydia in Acts 16.14. It says of her, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to the things spoken of by Paul. And of course, we see this in Rome, uh, Romans 2.29. The true Jew, the inward Jew, uh, the one inwardly is of circumcision of the heart by the spirit not by the letter and his praise is not from men but from god the true jew the inner jew the true believer is one who is circumcised changed cut deeply or you could look at colossians or first corinthians 2 10 god has revealed to them that is the glories the glories of the crucified Christ. God has revealed to them all of this through the Spirit, Paul says. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. And then in verse 12, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the depths graciously given to us by God. The Spirit is the one, the only one, who changes the heart and the mind of the sinner towards Christ. And this is the reason the Scripture gives for why your heart changes. Because the Spirit has changed you. 
This is the Spirit's work, but notice it's also through the Son's Word. The Spirit only changes the heart through the hearing of the Word of Christ or the hearing of the Gospel. Of course, we think of Romans 10, 17. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. But did you notice here that the Son's words are present here? What is the thief hearing here? Well, I point you over to verse 34. Remember, Jesus said while he's on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. Jesus' way of dying and his apparent authority in his death made this criminal think. Number one, he is not dying like I am dying. He is different. He is holy. He is separate. And he speaks with authority to a father to forgive. How were this man's eyes opened? He heard Jesus' words. He maybe said to himself, listen to his words. If he can forgive these sinners around me and under me, he can forgive me as well. Hearing the Son's words means that you hear the truth of the Gospel, that you can be forgiven of all of your sin. And he even hears this in a small, small way. By the way, though, this is the the very same thing you say to yourself. This is the very same grace and mercy of Jesus on the cross that he says to all sinners. Jesus is on the cross speaking to us that He forgives and offers salvation to all sinners. This is what He said His entire life. And this is what He continued to say on the cross. I'm thinking of places like Matthew eleven twenty eight, where He says, Come to Me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Or John 6, 37, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. There is salvation, in other words, but you have to come to and through me. And this is what this thief on the cross is hearing. Forgiveness is found in this different man. And if forgiveness can be offered to these brutal Roman soldiers, then forgiveness can be offered to me in all of my crimes as well. It's the Spirit's work through Christ's work, but the Word, but notice it's also never independent of the Father's will. Once again, Luke shows you this again and again, and you could even look at whole sections of Luke's Gospel where it's very clear that Jesus is doing what He's doing because it's the Father's will. It's all going according to plan. And so too, every man, every woman, Every boy, every girl who comes to Christ comes according to the Father's will. Or to put it simply, seeing the innocence and the righteousness of Jesus in his death both convinced and convicted this man all at once. And here we see a beautiful 
simple picture of a sinner's salvation. It's a beautiful, simple picture. This criminal then turns to Jesus on the cross and says just a few words. He says in verse 42, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. That's all he says. That's his sinner's prayer. What is he saying? Notice he is is not simply asking Jesus to recall information about him sometime in the future. He is asking Jesus by saying, remember me to continually care and have concern and do do good to me. That is what Jesus, or the criminal is asking Jesus, care for me, continue to have concern for me. And you notice he he knows so much truth about Jesus as well. True confession requires true knowledge of Jesus. He, He knows that Jesus is a king, and he knows that Jesus has a kingdom, and he knows that Jesus will be returning, perhaps because he had a Jewish upbringing. But but notice this, it's amazing, it's supernatural, right? He believes Christ's kingdom is still coming even though Christ hangs on the cross. He believes, beyond his comprehension, that Christ's kingdom in some way, some powerful way, is beyond this cross. I don't know how it works, but I believe it. Remember me when you are coming. In other words, make me a member of your returning party when you come. I want to be with you as I am with you right now. I want to be with you forever. That's the request. Notice the simple response of Jesus. J.C. Ryle once again suggests to us that this is perhaps one of the greatest displays of Jesus' saving power that we are given while he is on earth. Once again, you've got to kind of think through that. Remember the context. Jesus is on the cross. Every breath is a battle. Every gasp of air is costly. But Jesus can still speak, and his words, even here in this weakened state, possess eternally changing power for this man. This man's eternal destiny is changed by the few gasps of air that Jesus makes. Look at Jesus' words, verse 43. He said, Truly I say to you today, you shall be with me in paradise. Now, just to be upfront, I'm going to completely plagiarize my favorite commentator in the entire world, Dale Ralph Davis, just so we know, just so we know. It's not illegal if you, te- if you say you're doing it. He, he suggests this. He says, Uh, Jesus' promises here are spectacular. Look at all the promises that Jesus pours out, the power that Jesus displays right here in this moment, in these few words. And let these few words fill your heart with joy at the power and the saving greatness of your Savior. Notice, His words here possess certainty. Jesus says, truly, Truly, this is, this is a statement of ultimate truth, ultimate 
affirmation of truth. The one who speaks here is Jesus, and he speaks with omniscient, all-knowing knowledge, and he says truly. That's good enough for me. As a matter of fact, the sinner, the sinner can find no greater comfort, no greater assurance than when Jesus says truly. And notice also his words and Jesus' promises here are immediate. He says truly, but they're they are certain, but they're also immediate because he also says today. Apparently, Jesus' powerful promises have the ability to bypass purgatory altogether. I mean, who, who wants a pope when you can have Jesus? When he says, today you will be with me. Powerful because they are immediate. And notice Jesus' promises here are also personal. He says to this criminal hanging beside him, you will be with me. Not you will be in the lower ranks of the kingdom. But you, today, truly, will be with me. This is speaking of the joy of salvation. The joy of salvation, do you know it? It is knowing that you are going to be in the presence of God forever and knowing that that experience even begins today. That is eternal life. We will always be with the Lord, 1 Thessalonians 4.17 tells us. Jesus' promises here are certain, they're immediate, they're personal, but notice they're also wonderful. They're wonderful. Truly I say to you, that you will be with me today in paradise. Now, we don't have time to go into all the theology, I'm sure. Pastor Steve will sort this out for us. Of course, Jesus is referring to the intermediate state here between the kingdom and the present time. But, I mean, when you're gasping for air, maybe you don't need to clarify all of that. That's good enough for me. Today, you're going to be with me forever. And you will return, notice, Jesus doesn't clarify, but Jesus simply says, you will be with me. And that implies, in my mind, that you will then also return with me in my kingdom. What saving power. What glorious riches are ours in Jesus. And just three, three concluding comments. I'll keep them brief because I am personally related to the child care ministry this evening. Three concluding comments. First off, what a, what a wonderful picture of the gospel. What a wonderful picture of the gospel. What a wonderful picture of us as sinners before Christ. You too are an enemy of God. You too can come up with dozens, hundreds, thousands, if you had enough time, millions of reasons why you should justly spend eternity separated from God in eternal judgment. But you too, through a humble request, Jesus, remember me, can have assurance, even today, that you will be with Jesus forever. But not because of your worth, but simply to display his worth. That's why Jesus encounters people. Not to display their greatness, but his greatness. 
You can find assurance in being a member of Jesus' return party and kingdom, though, only on the basis of Jesus' words. Not your words, not your feelings, but you need to listen to His words. That is where assurance comes from. There's this great sermon by Alistair Begg that I always find myself listening to around the resurrection season. I can never skip it when it's on my news feed. I must watch the whole thing, at least the clip of it that's played. It is by far, I I think, one of my favorite clips ever. I'm going to slaughter it, but I love it. He makes a little joke about this criminal showing up in paradise. And his point is not to you know, dissect the intricacies of work salvation and things like that, but he's just having a little bit of fun with this picture because can you just imagine the scene? This man has lived a rotten life for his entire life. And once again, it's highly unlikely that people that live rotten lives for their entire life have a deathbed conversion, right? But this man shows up in heaven and, and begs says, in his sermon, talking as one of the heavenly attendants. Hey, hey, hey! I remember you. You were that criminal. You were that revolutionary. How in the world did you find yourself here? To which the criminal says, I don't know. You must have gotten here somehow. What did you do to get in here? I did nothing. I, 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 I did nothing. Then then why are you here? Who said, who said you could come here? You don't belong here. To which the criminal replies, you're right, I don't belong here. I'm just here because the man on the middle cross said I could be here. That's all you have to hold to too, beloved. That is the confession that must be yours as well. It's nothing about what I did. It's simply because what he did and what he said. And the man on the middle cross said I could be here. And that's why I'm here. This is a wonderful picture of the gospel, but I'd also say what a wonderful clarification of the gospel. What a wonderful clarification of the gospel. The gospel comes to you completely free of charge and on the basis of Christ's work alone. But the gospel will bear fruit in your life. Even in this man's short stint as a Christian on earth, we see the fruits of the gospel And they are remarkable. Once again, like I said, he has the fear of God and judgment. He has the conviction of sin. He has even change of behavior. He has love for his fellow man. He has repentance and faith towards Christ. He has fruits all over the place. This is a clarification of the gospel. The gospel is free, but it will bear fruits of change, depending on how long you live. But there will be change. But also, finally, what a, what a wonderful encouragement in the gospel. What a wonderful encouragement. You can say to yourself, if Jesus seeks to save such a one as this, who am I to stand outside the feast? Who am I? This is a sweet source of assurance 
It's a blessed thing to believe the gospel according to the Pharisees that Jesus eats and drinks with sinners like me. I love the song that we sang this morning, right? The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in this day, and there uh, may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. Jesus seeks to save sinners. And if he will save a sinner like this, he can save a sinner like me. And he can save a sinner like the person I am praying for. He can save all. But once again, this is simply a picture, a glorious picture of the outrageous grace of our saving God. And it's sweet to the heart of the humble. How sweet and awful is the place with Christ within the doors. While everlasting love displays the choicest of his stores, while all our hearts and all our songs join to admire the feast, each of us cry with thankful tongues, Lord, why was I a guest? Why was I made to hear thy voice and enter while there's room when thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come? Twas the same love that spread the feast that sweetly drew us in. Else we had still refused to taste and perished in our sin. Pity. Pity the nations, O our God. Constrain the earth to come. Send thy victorious word abroad and bring the strangers home. We long to see thy churches full that all the chosen race may with one voice and heart and soul sing Thy redeeming grace. May the Lord fulfill His Word in us and through us. Amen.